to try and try really hard and just apply for however many things. Just keep pushing. You also got to get out there, talk to people, and figure out how to affect change the best way that you can. And then make a choice and decision. Because if you don't take that first step, you know, like, you'll just stay stagnant. It takes a lot to fight. It takes a lot of character. It takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of support. The struggle for me is like, why does what I make matter? And how can I make my work matter? Welcome to In Conversation. Welcome to In Conversation. In Conversation. In Conversation. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to In Conversation. I'm Busayo. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today. We have two things on the agenda. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my favorite book at the moment. It's called The Cross of Redemption. It's a collection of James Baldwin's writings that is just brilliant and rocking my world. And my conversation with one of my favorite people, Tracy Scott Wilson. She is a playwright. She's a TV writer and producer. Her current project is the show Fosse Verdon on FX. And prior to that, she was a writer and a co-producer producer on the show The Americans and she's going to share a little bit of her journey with us and how she got to where she is today. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to In Conversation. In Conversation. In Conversation. I am a witness to and a survivor of the latest slave rebellion of what American newspapers erroneously termed the civil rights movement. I put it that way because Malcolm X and I met many years ago when Malcolm was debating a very young sitting student on a radio station, which had asked me to moderate the discussion. Malcolm asked the student a question, which I now present to you. If you are a citizen, why do you have to fight for your civil rights? If you're fighting for your civil rights, then that means you're not a citizen. Indeed, the legalisms of this country have never had anything to do with its former slaves. We're still governed by the slave codes. I read this, a piece from the James Baldwin essay on language, race, and the black writer, and it rocked me to my core. That entire essay rocked me to my core because I think in this particular political moment, you know, we keep having to reinforce and reassert our right to citizenship as black people in this country. The Black Lives Matter, like why do we have to say that? Or why do we, you know, sort of in our interactions with the state built in inherent in these interactions is almost the notion that you are not a citizen here. You do not have the same rights that everybody else has. And I think we've been kind of bamboozled a little bit to really think that we do, right? And so you can kind of live, you know, a little bit in a kind of cocoon if you choose to. And I feel like in the last few years, my eyes were always open, but I think kind of opened in a much deeper way to the fact that we're still engaging in the same struggles and battles that our forefathers and those that went before us uh, engaged in. And what I'm really loving about the cross of redemption is that it's given me new language to kind of understand the situation that black people find themselves in. And frankly, white people also find themselves in in this country sort of around the country's original sin, which was slavery, right? And the kind of criminalization and demonization of blackness. So this book, it's called The Cross of Redemption. It's put together by a professor from North Carolina called Randon Kinnon. And it's essentially a really well curated um, exploration of James Baldwin's work that were not published. So some of these articles uh, published in different magazine and Harper's and Essence, right? Um, one of my absolute favorites is an essay called On Being White and Other Lies, which was published in Essence magazine. He really did some really interesting things. There's a love letter that he wrote to Geraldine Page in this book. There is, a, you know, a, an ode to Sidney Poitier, um, a review of the fight between Patterson and Liston. So there's a kind of a range of work in this. Um, so some really powerful nonfiction essays, tackling issues of race, what it means to be a black person in Europe at a particular point 
point in time. They also the question of citizenship, right? What does it mean to be a citizen in this country? And how are black people and uh, citizens and not citizenship? And also a really difficult question that I think is often hard for us to confront face on, which is the ways in which the racial hierarchy continues to kind of keep black people at the bottom, often at the expense of people who've just arrived in this country, right? Like that's a really tough thing. I'm a child of an immigrant who came from Nigeria. And what are the ways in which I'm as an immigrant even complacent in the continued kind of maintenance of this racial hierarchy? So it is a powerful book. I think it gives us really new language and new questions and new ways to think about what it means to be a black person in this country and what it means to be a white person in this country. And I feel like we rarely engage with that question. And this book really does that in this powerful way. So I highly recommend it if you can pick it up. It's not quite light summer reading, but I do think you should take it to the beach with you. Thank you so much. And next is my conversation with Tracy Scott Wilson. Welcome to In Conversation. In Conversation. In Conversation. Thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me. Thank you for inviting me. Oh my gosh. So Tracy and I met for the second time at a boxing gym. But the first time we met was when I accosted her on the street on Atlantic Avenue. Um, After I'd seen, I'd seen The Good Negro, which is Tracy's incredible, amazing play, which we'll get to in a second. And I'd gone to a talk back that you were having with Liesl. I think it was you and Liesl, Tommy, and a third person. And it was after the show and I loved it. I had so many questions about The Good Negro grow sort of the genesis of the play the irreverent way in which it really kind of interrogated some of our heroes and our sacred cows a little bit so I just I loved the play I loved the talk back and then I saw you walking on my block so I ran up to you and I was like oh my god I love you so much and you looked at me like I was deranged which I <laughs> no I didn't <laughs> No. And and your your now wife Karen, your girlfriend at the time, I guess you guys what date were you guys you guys were on a date, right? No, I th- we had I think we had been together for a couple of months at that point. So. Oh, so it was still yeah. early. Yeah. It was still early. And she must have what did she, did she say anything or No, she was uh <laughs> Like I was, she was uh, thrilled, you know, really nice honor to be recognized on the street. Oh, you're so humble. I love that about you. (laughs) And then we we ran into each other again at Gleason's, um, our boxing gym. And so I guess... Next day. Yeah, it was literally the next day, which was crazy. So I guess my first question would be, I guess, boxing related is like, how did you get to Gleason's? How did you get to boxing? Uh, Well, actually, it was because um, The Good Negro, because we had done The Good Negro in Texas. So I was away in Dallas, Texas for over a two months and anyone who's been in Texas should know that you know the barbecue is incredible there <laughs> and it didn't take long for me to start having barbecue morning noon and night <laughs> So, Where was the Good Negro? Which theater? Uh, Dallas Theater Center. Okay. And I um, gained about over 20 pounds while I was away in Texas. And I came back and Karen was like, whoa, hello. <laughs> and uh, I just had to get, get in shape. And I always loved boxing. Loved watching it. And I just thought, Let me tr-, you know, it seemed like a really good workout. So I started that. So can you talk a little bit about the Good Negro and what inspired it and what it meant in your career? Which is a big question. I was always um, fascinated, uh, inspired, terrified of. Uh, the civil rights movement it's something I always read books you know I read about not only in school but just in my spare time and when I was in college the Seminole 
documentary Eyes and a Prize. Yep, of course. Came on. I watched that obsessively. And then soon after that, there was a book came out called Bearing the Cross, I think by David Garrow. Bearing the Cross? <clears throat> Bearing the Cross, yes. Yeah. And it was the first book that talked about King as a, a man, as a person, outside of strategy. It was also the first book that talked about King's extramural affairs. I read that book and it allowed me to see the civil rights movement in a new way. And soon after that, Taylor Branch's uh, books, Part of the Waters, came out. And it was very similar. It just brought a, a new humanity to the to the movement. So those things were always sort of in the back of my mind. And then when I started writing plays, I knew I wanted to tackle this. And another book came out, Carry Me Home, by Diane McWhorter. Uh, Diane was uh, grew up in Alabama in the 50s. And she came from a prominent family in Alabama. And she wrote the book. Her father was sort of the black sheep of the family. She grew up with this prominent family. But he sort of hung out with, you know, rednecks and a clan. And so she, she sort of lived in these very two different worlds. This is a white woman that wrote yes. this book? Okay. She initially wrote, it, wrote the book to investigate, because her father sort of implied that he knew about the bombing or involved in the bombing. And the book was in, it started as an investigation to find out whether or not her father was involved in the bombing of the four little girls. And he wasn't, but it just started up this, it just opened up this whole Pandora's box. And she just, and it, it's, it's this really rich, complex, beautifully written book about uh, Alabama, the civil rights struggle in Alabama. But it just incorporates entire history, both black and white, and the labor movement struggle. And it was just, it was just comprehensive. It just changed my perspective on the movement, on political struggle, on what the takes, on the sacrifice. In what way? Because, you know, when we see those images, when we hear those stories, most of the time we only hear these sort of quick little bits about it. And this book really broke down for me daily struggle. What it just did, it, there was not a victory every day. There was not a, even a victory every month. The incredible will and strength that it took to fight this fight and to keep believing. It inspired me to say, you know, it, it takes a lot to fight. It takes a lot of character. It takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of support. And that book just really uh, brought that home to me in a very personal way. And how long from sort of engaging with all of these texts, these were just throughout your kind of your 20s and, and coming up, did sort of the genesis of the good Negro sort of was born? Uh, I actually think it was right around the time I was reading that book. And then I, I knew I wanted to write. I had written my first play, The Story, and I knew I wanted to tackle the civil rights movement. And I was re-watching Eyes on the Prize. You know, I just saw some documentary footage of King walking with Andrew Young or something. It struck me how impeccably dressed they were, how articulate and well-poised and all those things that everyone was even when they were getting arrested. And I just thought, it just sort of hit me how they couldn't just demand rights because they were human because they were not seen as human. They were actually presenting themselves as extraordinary human beings and demanding rights through that route. It was the reason why, you know, they chose Rosa Parks as opposed to Claudette Colvin, who was arrested before Rosa Parks. You know, she was 17. She was the 15-year-old, right? Yeah. Yeah. She was pregnant. She came from a poor family. There was a father in a shack. You know, so it's the reason why you had to choose Rosa Parks and not Claudette. So that's when the title came to me. I was uh, Good Negroes. Hmm. And then from that title, you know, the story came. Did you ever consider having the King character be actual Dr. King or making the play center around the a fictional version, but Dr. King himself, as opposed to this character that very much is, you know, the minute you see, you know, Dr. Reverend Lawrence, you know who it evokes, but it's obviously not him. No, I never wanted to be about him because I didn't want to have a bunch of actors in there imitating Dr. <laughs> King's voice. That would just be annoying. And then and then it would just be, I think, distracting. And also I was trying to show King in a way that hadn't been shown before. And did you get a lot of criticism of that? Like I tried to, I was sort of going back reading some of the press that came out around the show. And I actually didn't see a lot sort of, of negativity, but I just wonder in terms of do people coming up to you. Uh, so surprisingly, I didn't get much pushback at all. People seemed to appreciate there was a complexity there. And also, like I said, I hadn't seen anything about it in fiction or on stage but 
you know, these books have come out and talked about it, so it was known, and it was, uh, and since then, almost everything that you see, but now by King talks about sort of these affairs and, you know, the tape that uh, Jager Hoover sent Coretta. People actually seem to actually appreciate it. I didn't really get a lot of pushback about that. So thank you for that, because I really love that play. I'm kind of obsessed with it. <laughs> and I think about now how, like, the idea of, like, good Negroes, right? Like, what does that really mean? And how it's, like, kind of in all of our lives, right? Like, I've sort of been really, as I saw, I'm not your Negro. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. So I saw it twice. I was obsessed for a while. And I think one thing that really struck me is there's this whole section on capitalism and this in the middle of the film there's this idea of like it was like civil rights movement and all this struggle 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 and then the injection of like madison avenue and the idea of like the black person as a consumer and like this is how you sell to black people this mm -hmm. is how you market to black people mm -hmm. and it's like a really small tiny mm -hmm. piece of the movie mm -hmm. but in some ways like when i think about the good negro i really think about that idea too right like there's this idea of a whole slew of us that are like good good yeah good little negroes who are performing right and participating in this capitalistic system and in some ways the fight has been dimmed in our belly i think partially because we want to hold on to this little bit of the pie that we get but that's just my own well i think that uh capitalism and uh, marketing has a way of co-opting uh, every movement you know the beatnik movement was co-opt you know the hippie anti-war movement the black panther movement because a lot of these movements were created by young people and then all of a sudden there's a look that's attached to it. There's a fashion. Look, there's a style. And fashion, <laughs> which you're in. So blame your people. <laughs> Then look at that. You know, they Black Panthers is an example. It's just all of a sudden you start to see black leather jackets and afros right on the runway. What they're saying gets swallowed up by the the sale of it all, the sale of the image. It right. becomes about this push to make it about image as versus substance. And I think that's something that every mass movement has to struggle against because once you get that sort of national international exposure, that's just the danger of it. You mm. know? Yeah. Then you get to Beyonce at the Super Bowl. You know, which is the most capitalist of of I mean. I, mean, I don't think there's anything more capitalistic than that in this country. Yeah. Right? Like, as a singular event. Okay, that is a political act, right? To bring mm -hmm. forth this image in that yeah. space. But then it doesn't really say anything more than that to me. Like, okay, what does it say more than, like, okay, we look fabulous and we look fierce and we're paying homage to these people. But it doesn't threaten that system or that structure in any way. It can. I mean, you know, I know that there are individual voices, conservative commentators who are upset about that. But also, but what it does, I think, that, that can be radical is that it brings those images and it brings that to a much wider audience. You know, there are pe to people who don't follow Beyonce and Instagram, who don't Instagram, or people who just care about the Super Bowl. What is it? How many billion people watch it? It's something insane. <laughs> and you know, seeing all those black people in different shapes and sizes, and seeing seeing those mothers, I think can have an impact. Only people who hadn't seen it before will see it. See it. It's better than doing nothing. No, it's true. Know? It's true. When would you say your writing career started? Uh, I was in the fifth grade when um, I had a teacher, Miss Michelle. Miss Michelle. Yeah. Okay. Every week she would have these um, writing contests after. Winning so many times, Miss Michelle said to me, "You should be a writer." Hmm. And I didn't, you know, I was only in the fifth grade, and I was just like, "Oh, okay, so I'll be a writer." I didn't even know what it meant, but I just knew I enjoyed it. And then I used to just write stories, and I just loved to read. And, and and then you know, when I got to college, 
And you went to Rutgers? I went to Rutgers in New York. Okay. So when I got to college, I was an English major. And then, you know, it's all of a sudden people start telling you you have to be practical and you have to think about your... your... Were your parents saying that at all? or? No, they were actually very supportive. Because so then when I was about... At first, so at first I thought I was going to be a journalist, but then I realized that wasn't going to be a good fit because I liked to make up stories too much. And journalism <laughs> actually, actually takes a lot of discipline and a lot of time and a lot of... to try to be objective. Of course, not now. But anyway, that's another story. So then I stuck with English and then I was like, oh, maybe I'll go to law school. So I was a political science minor. Okay. And then political science people were just obsessed with going to law school. When I was like going into my junior year, I was taking this LSAT class and, uh, I started having stress dreams about taking the LSAT, even though I wasn't going to have to take it for two years. And I was just like, this is crazy. So I quit that. And I just thought, okay, I'll go to grad school for English, thinking I might get a PhD. But then I went to, so I went to Temple uh, Creative Writing to get an MA in Creative Writing. And I took a PhD class, you know, PhD level class, just to see if I was going to like it. And it was, uh, I think it was about Shakespeare, it was a Shakespeare class. We were studying Hamlet. And it was just this endless, endless, endless stream of, uh, I don't know what to say. I, I don't want to disparage it because it's 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 important. But academic papers on ear imagery and Hamlet and um, the what type of imagery? Ear. Oh, the ear, ear imagery. imagery. I mean, okay. To, there was like a whole stack of you know because the king poison is put in his ear. Yeah, right. And I, I just it, it was so disconnected from what I thought it was a creative experience. Yeah. Because I thought if a writer thought that much about what they were putting in it, they thought as much as it is analyzed, then nothing would ever get written or being incredibly pretentious because a lot of it is just sort of this whatever it's sort of instinctual and you know what sounds right so I just didn't think I would enjoy analyzing fiction as much as I would writing it so then I just decided I was going to try to um, be a fiction writer and was this a creative writing program that you were in? yeah it was okay, a creative okay. writing program and I, I wrote this satiric novel called I don't know why the cage bird won't shut up because I was <laughs> wait what? yeah I don't know why the cage bird won't shut, shut up, up. Yeah. okay it was a satiric novel that I wrote because uh, when I was in those classes, everyone was sort of expecting me to write this sort of Southern Toni Morrison like Southern uh, Alice Walker. Yeah, it was weird. It was just uh, you know, I I just felt like I was just looked down. You know, I was a black writer and I should write a certain way. Were there other black people in the class? There was one other black guy in the class. Okay. And so I just was you know rebelling against all of that, and I wrote this novel. And, and then after school, you know, I went to you know I went to work and stuff like that. Wait, wait, let's talk about this novel for a second. Yeah. So was it was it a take on I know why the cage bird things or is it no just- it was just it was just sort of a satire of black expectations around what what it means means to be black mm. you know this was in the 90s and what it, in terms of you know politically in terms of being a woman in terms of actually it was actually kind of dark i haven't looked at it for years and it, it was about a woman who was trying to find her identity through these different movements okay. a black woman who was trying to find her identity through these different movements to, in order to overcome a traumatic experience she had in her life like by participating in these movements yeah, or by, by participating so was, you know it's like someone sort of trying to find out these diff- these different hats like as opposed to actually coming at it organically so like i'm gonna join this like black militant group this week and then yeah, move on to the I'm next gonna, yeah, yeah or maybe i could be a preppy black person or maybe i could be so it was just sort of i, I think it was marrying what i was what i was going through in terms of you know when you're a black artist people just try to put you instantly into a box and so i was trying to satirize the different kind of boxes that people try to put you in and talk about how the need to find an authentic box 
Hmm. Not even a box, an authentic self. I think I got an agent through it, but I remember I sent it out and I got like 30 rejections from the novel in one day. And back then they used to send you the novel back when they rejected it. So it was literally like a stack of mail up to my knee. It was really devastating to me. And it happened right around the same time as my father passed away. And so for the first time since I started writing in the fifth grade, I had writer's block for almost two years. How old were you then? I was about 25 to 27 around okay. this time. I had a job writing computer instruction manuals. So wait, did you have the job the entire time you were also writing on the side? No, or? I was... Uh, during that whole time, at, at one point I, I was living in North Carolina. When my father passed away, I moved back. And when I... As soon as my father passed away, that's sort of when the writer's block started. And then I moved back home just to help my mom. And that's when I had the job writing computer instruction manuals. And a colleague of mine at work had this brochure for the 63rd Street Y, which I think they closed the 63rd Street Y. But anyway, it, had, it was a brochure for, with these different classes that they had. And there was a writing class. And I, I didn't want to take a fiction writing class because I thought that was going to be too much pressure. But I just wanted to write something on a page. So I took a playwriting class because I, I thought, I'm not, I don't want to be a playwright. I'm just going to do this till I could get back to fiction. So you still wanted to write sort of long form fiction I even did. after the rejection letters came yeah, in yeah I like, did I just wanted to find my way back to it right did you have any any moment after you got all the, the the letters back thinking like is this not the right path for me or were you still sure like oh I'm meant to be a writer and these people don't know what the hell they're talking no, about no I said they, they probably didn't know what the hell they were talking about but <laughs> I, I still it wasn't going to stop me I just was going to keep going because I know that all kinds of writers have rejections all the time I knew that okay know? and so I signed up for this playwriting class with this wonderful uh, playwright Shuri Miyagawa it was like as soon as I took that class it was like falling in love at first sight it was just like this is it this is what I want to do and I just absorbed everything I could I went to Lincoln Center Live for the performing arts as a theater on film and tape department where you could watch basically every film and they have a uh, library going back to like 70s and I would read a play and then go to Lincoln Center Library and watch a production of the play and so I would do that I got fired from my job writing computer instruction <laughs> manuals and so I, I was on unemployment and living at home with my mother and I would go to the Lincoln Center Library three or four days a week and on the weekends I would usher two or three plays a week so I my, and for two years I did that straight while taking this playwriting class so I was I'd basically put myself through self-grad school. Can I ask you about that yeah. time? There's something really almost boot campy about it. Like, I would read a play, I would go watch this play. I was there three or four times a week. And would you watch several of these plays while you were there? Oh yeah, I, I usually when I was there, I mean, it got to the point where I, when I would call up, they knew it was, I would be like, hey Tracy. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> they, knew, they knew it was me. And I'd watch at least two plays. A day, um, okay. I'd, yeah, two plays a day. So I'd be there for three or four hours. It, w it actually got me out of my depression because I was depressed about my father passing away and stuff like that. And it, it just brought me such joy. Like, every time I would go there just to see these plays, that's how it just brought me such joy to sit there and watch these plays. And it was just, it really brought me out of something. And then I met through the uh, playwriting class, I met you know, other artists and writers. And then my teacher, uh, Chiori, recommended me for a fellowship at New York Theatre Workshop. And at the time they had just moved rent to Broadway. So they were like the hot theater. And I got a um, fellowship at the New York Theatre Workshop, and it just changed my life. Changed mm. my life. It, it just opened up my world, and I, I met fellow playwrights. I met actors. I learned all about it. You know, I mean, I was broke for a long time, but it was brought me such joy. Do you remember specific productions that just completely, like, blew your mind wide open? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw, that's where I saw Angels in America, the original Broadway um, production directed by Jersey Wolf. That's where I saw 
I remember reading on the train every day. I remember reading Angels in America just being, just I, there was just no words for what it was. It was like reading a sacred text and then seeing it in the Consenter Library and just being blown away by, by the production of it. And, you know, reading it and then seeing how they staged it was just such a learning experience. I saw, I remember, uh, you know, John Guare's House of Blue Leaves. There was two different productions of that. I mean, and I saw like plays that I loved and plays that I didn't love. Even the plays I didn't love were, was an education. You know, and I, and I just, I uh, saw George's Midsummer's Night Stream, they did in the park. And it was just, it was just like a whole world. The George C. Wolf's yeah. production? Okay. It was just, you know, Susan Laurie Park's plays, Venus and Red Letter plays. Actually, I think I saw those. I think I probably ushered at those shows. I saw those plays. Live. And I also, uh, like, I would save whatever money that I had from unemployment. To, I went to Broadway shows, too, just to see what that was like. And I realized I, I liked off-Broadway stuff better. But I was just, all, like, off-theater all the time. There's something... So what I was saying earlier was something very boot camp. There's something really sound almost very lonely also about it. Well, you know, it's funny. At first, when I first used to go there, I used to always bring somebody with me. Like, I would invite my cousin or my friends. And they would go a few times, but then they, they wouldn't want to go anymore. <laughs> And then, so I just would go by myself. I didn't mind going by myself. Sometimes after, what I would like, cause you know, when you're there, you just want to watch it. That's when they, they had the, uh, there used to be a big Barnes & Noble across the street at Lincoln Center. And then I would go yes, yes. across the street to the theater section and buy some more plays or just read some book in the theater section. You know, so I remember eating after sometimes would be lonely. But sometimes I'd try to get a friend to meet me after or something like that. You get recommended for this fellowship and you get accepted. Is it like a one year, like they give you a lump sum of money or? It was two. It was a two-year fellowship. It was called the Van Leer Fellowship. Okay. Uh, it was me and three other playwrights, uh, Hilly Hicks, Tanya Barfield, and Derek Nagon. And we would meet once a week, each working on a play, because at the end of the year, we'd have a public reading of the play. So we were there, you know, critiquing each other's plays, and, and these people became my friends. And is that where the story was born, or was the story in existence before then? Actually, the first play I wrote for New York Theatre Workshop was an adaptation of the uh, my, my book, I Don't Know Why the Cage Won't Shut Up. Oh my gosh! <laughs> adaptation of that book. So that there was, was a reading of this play? There was a reading of that play okay. at New York Theatre Workshop. That was my first reading. And what was that experience like? Uh, it was thrilling. It was a thrill. It was really thrilling. And then um, I wrote a play after that called Exhibit Number no. Nine that was produced by this theater, uh, Upper East Side Theater. It was, it's not. It's it's not around anymore. It was called Theater Outrageous or something. And um, that was also satire, black middle class, worse expectations. I suppose I was always sort of obsessed with this <laughs> idea, of good, good negroness. Yeah. And uh, and that that play had a reading at the public theater, which was a thrill because I saw so many productions, public productions at Lincoln Center Library. And then uh, I had a reading of that play there. I started working on the story. The world just kept getting wider and wider. And then I think during my second fellowship in New York Theater Workshop, I think that's when I started the story. What inspired the story? Uh, well, when I was in Minnesota, I worked at University of Minnesota, and I worked for their alumni magazine. And they had this great thing called Lexus Nexus that I had access yeah. to. Most people know you could just get any magazine or newspaper article from anywhere around the world. So when I was bored, I would just troll Lexus Nexus for looking for interesting articles. Or any, you know, if anybody any, anything popped into my head, I would just you know look it up and read about it. And so for some reason, I don't know what triggered it. I thought about Janet Cook, who was a reporter for the Washington Post in, in the 80s and wrote a story about a 10-year-old heroin addict. 
and she won the Pulitzer Prize, and then they found out she made up the whole story. And I, I had one of those things, whatever happened to her? And I looked her up, and there was just this whole slew of articles, and I just started to get fixated on her. And that story, the dream of the idea started from that. It's, it, like, needs to be a movie. It's, <laughs> no, it is so... I just... I've only seen a reading of it. But it needs to be a film. Like, it really plays out cinematically for me. So so it opens at the public. Do you remember when it opened and like what the response was and what that felt like? That was sort of your arrival, really. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was directed by Loretta Greco, wonderful Loretta Greco, who owns the Magic Theater in San Francisco now. And um, it was, um, and it started Felicia Rashad and Erica Alexander, so it was like an all oh cosmic Maxine? Production. Yeah. Oh Maxine. my God, wow. It was terrifying. I lost 20 pounds. And Do you remember, remember meeting Felicia Rashad for the first time? And, uh, oh, yeah. And what, I mean, that must have been... It was surreal. It was, all, it was just like, I couldn't believe it was happening. And like I said, I had watched so many productions of the public theater, and I thought, oh, this is where I, you know, I mean, what playwright does it say? I want my play here. That it was happening was surreal. And I, I was living in New Jersey at the time and, um, you know, community back and forth. And it was incredibly exciting, but also incredibly stressful. And I remember for the last sort of two weeks of the production, I rented a... The public helped me find a, an apartment near the theater. And so I was like living in New York City and being a playwright. <laughs> I was just like, you know. And I, I was excited and stressed that I, I would only eat like one meal a day, like at 10 o'clock at night, <laughs> you know, at the diner over there on Broadway. I know that diner. Joking. Like at the yeah. corner. I know exactly <laughs> exactly. what you're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> like 7th and Broadway or like 8th and Broadway. Yes, right? that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. I would go there oh at 10 God. o'clock at night and eat a bacon cheeseburger or something. Oh my God. Which surprisingly you, will make you lose weight if you don't eat. If it that's the only that. thing you're eating. <laughs> oh my and, god! Uh, what do you think? What do you think the nervousness was? Oh my god! Well, it was just like my, it was just very public. It was a, it was I was at the public theater and I was doing I was gonna get reviewed and it was just like what was gonna happen and I mean I had had a production before that but it was you know much smaller. I think that theater it was maybe a hundred people or something like that and this was just a very big deal and uh you know i remember i lost all that weight everyone was joking oh that's the public 20 <laughs> it's just like if you gain 20 or you lose 20 do you read your reviews oh yeah i i admire the people who say they don't but I, i've never been able to not read the review and what's your relationship with them oh it's uh it's hard. I heard Mayu Angela say once, like, something like, oh, and it sounds incredibly pretentious, I'm about to call her. But, <laughs> it's um, okay. <laughs> she said something about reviews. If you don't pick it up, you don't have to put it down. And so it's like, the good reviews could be as painful, as, as harmful to you in the long run than the bad ones. Because you get the good ones and you think, God, okay, this is how it's going to be now. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're just like, oh, wait, no, wait, that's not how it's going to be. It's just so hard when you, have, when you have something in mind and then you read somebody else's interpretation of it. The pain or the joy it gets shorter and shorter you yeah it's part of it so the story like what was the response what was like the critical kind of engagement with it it was got a really good response i was very very happy with the response to it and then you did know. was there like just immense relief once it went up or was it like well yes here's what i remember and it was so bittersweet so i was at the party and i was having fun at the party and drinking too much and then I didn't know people read the reviews on opening night. And then George pulled me outside and showed me the review. And it was a good review. George Wolf. Wolf. Oh, my God. And... Did he run the theater at the time? Or? Yeah, he ran the theater. Okay, the okay, okay. And I was really, being the cast, everyone was really happy about it. And then, of course, just because I'm, you know, got this kind of brain or whatever, all of a sudden I was just like, wow, how would I have felt if this was a bad review? And then and then I asked someone who worked at the public, I was like, so what happens when it doesn't turn out good? And she's like, well, everybody just gets 
sad and goes home. <laughs> and I was just like, oh. Oh, no. So, that was, and so then, of course, I was just anxious about my next show. Oh, my God. What's going to happen? Oh, no. And then I remember I went home at like 3 o'clock in the morning to my little apartment, and I walked into the apartment, and I just ran to the bathroom and projectile vomited into the toilet. Oh, just, my God. <laughs> it was like all the stress, and I was just, all the stress and everything, just like... You know, and I was like sobbing or whatever. I just didn't realize how much I was. You were sobbing. I didn't realize how much I was holding it. I was just like holding on to this inside. You know, and I think some of the grief that my father wasn't there to, to be a part of it. Uh, but one of the thrilling things was that um, an opening night, uh, I told Felicia I wanted her, my mother, her to meet my mom, and that was very exciting. So you have the story in 2003, you have The Good Negro in 2009, and then you have Buzzer in like 2014. What are you, how are you making a living in between that? I also won a bunch of awards around the story, so I got like, and I just was like, oh, well. people would just call me up and say I won this award and I won this award. So I actually made money from this play, and then uh, DPS published the play, and that was, and it was like more money than I had before. Uh, unfortunately, no one told me about taxes. <laughs> and so my cousin, who was a CPA, was doing my I taxed at the time and she was like you owe like $25,000 and I was like what? what? I know that was so crazy. So yeah. wait and you submitted the play for these prizes or they just like well people you know people would nominate people nominate, nominated me for things mm. that I didn't know you know theaters nominated me for things and it was really exciting and but then I owed this whole this big then tax the IRS bill. came calling <laughs> and it was just and then um what I also didn't know was I you know and I just thought you know Everyone that I, I came up with at the time, you know, because it was the 90s and stuff like that, we were just like, you know, we're just going to be playwrights. I don't know. We'll figure out how to... Uh, my agent sent me out to L.A. to to interview for these TV jobs. And I remember it was like, that's when um, Grey's Anatomy started and it was West Wing and all this sort of this new... Um, it was like post-NYPD blue. Yeah, this boom, new TV golden age. Of, the golden age, age of TV. Yeah. TV, uh, network TV and like homicide. 2004, 2005, yeah. yeah. And I went out there for a week, <laughs> I remember, and I had like five meetings a day and uh, I didn't get a job. I went out the next year, sort of same thing. I didn't get a job, but I did meet a producer who wanted to develop Laverne McKinnon who wanted to develop with me and with her help I sold pilot to NBC and then at the same time that I was doing The Good Negro What was this pilot called? It was called The Kingdom I saw two pilots actually. Oh wow, okay One called The Kingdom and one called Tar Baby How does that like it sold and then if well, we don't do yeah, anything with it, it do you get the rights yeah, back? Yeah, I could kick oh, it okay, the rights okay, okay. Writing these two pilots and I was doing The Good Negro and I was teaching at Brown so I, I had a lot of different little gig, gigs okay. going Then after The Good Negro came out I was pretty much broke again. So the play had, I would say similar to the what you described for the story had like a lot of acclaim. It, you know, I, it didn't have, you know, decent reviews, but it didn't get, you know, it wasn't like some kind of over the moon kind of super raves or anything like that. You know, it did all right. I was soon running out of money. And I remember I was thinking about substitute teaching, getting a job at UPS, one or the other. <laughs> Which yeah. I still don't. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I, mean, I think I, I was talking to you around that time. I was like, yeah. I'm going to apply for UPS. Because, it, it, you know, they have flexible hours and they had um, a health plan and a union. So I was just like, you know, just trying to figure out a way to still write. I get an email from my agent saying, um, this, this guy, David Schoner, wants to meet with you. He's at the upfronts and he's staffing this show called Do No Harm. And, you know, do you want to meet with him? And this was like on a Thursday and I was supposed to meet with him like on Tuesday. It was I remember it was Mother's Day weekend. I was like, okay. 
anyway, and I just sort of had no expectations of, it, of anything because I didn't want to get too excited about it. This is like one of my, you know this, this is one yeah. of my favorite. When I think about artists like in the weeds <laughs> and then the struggle, I just love the story because yeah. I remember we were at 67 Burger on Flatbush yeah. and you were like, I'm going back to teaching, substitute teaching, I need to find another job. I'm like, just down, you yeah. know? And because, because the finance, and I've been there, the financial burden, it's all consuming, right? Yeah. Like you just feel like you can't do anything else. Yeah. I'm literally, I don't I don't remember what day of the week is, but it was less than a week when you called and said, I'm moving to Los Angeles. Yeah, because I think I got the call right after I ate lunch at 67 Burger. I think I got that call. Because I think it was, a, it was a Saturday when I got that call or something. Anyway, you know, and I met with him and he had, David is just a lovely, lovely man and, and really great writer. He was a playwright before he started writing for TV. He remembered reading my play, The Story, in uh, American Theatre Magazine. Hmm. So that he called me in and, you know, at the end of the interview, he said, uh, will you be ready to move to L.A. in two weeks? And I was like, sure. Not thinking anything of it, thinking he was being polite. And then I got a call from agents a day later saying I got the job and I was, and I had to move to L.A. in two weeks. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> Dana was also on that show and she really held my hand and showed me how to basically be a TV writer. Is it different from being a playwright? Oh, yeah. It's very different. How? But first you have to, you're not writing in your, while your own voice sort of comes through in the script you really do have to try to imitate the voice of the show so the voice of the showrunner so you have to be able to be flexible with your voice in order to to capture the voice of the showrunner and it's 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 very collaborative in a way that theater also is because you're working with these other writers and you're coming up with these stories with these other writers you know theater you work with the set designer stuff like that but it's it's not just your voice and also when i write plays i have a, I have almost no stage directions and i don't write you know what it, what an actor should be feeling so uh, my first script for do no harm i gave it to diane before i uh, turned it into my showrunner and it was supposed to be 48 pages and my script was like literally 30 pages because i didn't know that you had to sort of in, in a network show you have to really because so many people read it and it, it, the production is so fast you have to sort of talk about the, the stage directors are so much more intricate you have to sort of talk about what the actor is feeling at this moment so the specific emotional state they're in and that and also you have to describe what it is because the set designers have to know what it is they now have to know what the set is they have to know what they're, what they're looking at so you really have to go into detail about what it is they're looking at where it is that you are and all that kind of stuff she was um, in New York at the time and I was in LA and I was on the phone with her and she went through every page of the script with me on the phone helped me to understand how to how to do this and it was was, once again just so generous and I was able to you know have a little bit of of money to, to live off of and, and then you know sort of looking for another job and got the Americans how did that happen actually out in LA doing the whole staffing thing again oh so you went back again for pilot season yeah, right? went, yeah. went back in LA is hard I mean there's some good things about LA good food sushi is amazing <laughs> but great food the driving around was it was hard for me <laughs> so I went out there and you know I was meeting at a bunch of things and I was but I was really like it was, it was really hard to commute back and forth to New York. You know, I would try to go back like every other weekend and it was just hard and, you know, I missed my wife, my girlfriend at the time. And so I just was like, please try to give me a job in New York. They were like, oh, this is the Americans. And I had heard about it and then I... So you didn't watch the show before then? I, I was meaning to watch it and when they then they told me about, about it and then I, I just watched it and I was I loved it. I mean, I just... I, I watched it in like three days or something. I was like, I want to be on the show really badly. I really want to be on the show. They were able to actually get me an interview in a, a couple of days after I had seen the whole se- series. To my surprise and delight, I got it. And the rest and is came history. came back to New York. <laughs> yeah. I 
was just like a perfect fit. It was all the things that I, I love to write about. It was about politics and the personal and the political. Yeah. And how do you merge the two? A really great spy drama at the same time. I, I would say it's a huge hit for because it's one of those shows to me that the people that love it yeah. are insanely obsessed. <laughs> yeah. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like, they yeah. have like such a, an yeah. intense relationship with the show. Yeah. You know, there's no ambivalence about that show. Yeah. Weisberg and Joe Fields. Don't tell the actors what to feel in the script. So it was the stage directions were much sparer, which is what I was used to. But still, it was it was it was also but a, still a learning curve. So, but I like Do No Harm. There was a whole season of scripts that I could read. Also involved doing one of the things that you know I love research and I love yeah, doing research. So, and history. So I got that job. I had like about three months to over the summer to research. So I just did all this like binge watch documentaries about World War One and World War Two and uh, the Cold War. Just read everything I could. So I really I really loved that part of it. Mm. And then, like I said, I had a whole season of scripts to study so I could really see what the style of the show was. But still, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, when I was going to write my first script, I was very nervous. I got off Facebook because of that, because I was <laughs> using, I realized I was really nervous and I was obsessively checking Facebook because I was trying to distract myself from it. And I thought, if I don't get off Facebook, I'm never going to write the script and I'm going to get fired. So I got off. <laughs> And, and we just got you back on Facebook not a few months ago. Yes, because Very of, excited. Because of Trump, yes. <laughs> because of because Trump. Trump. Uh, we're we're going to wrap up soon, but we have to yeah. get to him. We can't finish without talking about Trump. This is a stupid question that I actually asked DP, my other half, this question. And he was like, that's a stupid question. <laughs> but I have to ask it. Because this show is essentially like, it's kind of like historical fiction, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Like we, this period of history was lived through and we yeah. did have these spies. Like how much of it is just historical fiction and how much of it is based in rooted in like real things that happen. like you see like the yeah. assassin attempted assassination of Reagan yeah. but like in the minutiae like were scientists getting blown up all over DC like I know right. I could have googled it but right. I purposely didn't because like right. so Han, how much is that balance between like the reality and the and the kind of fictional piece of it yeah I think that that's probably one of the reasons why I thought it was such a good fit and why I was so so happy to get this job was because it it actually does the same thing I try to do in Good Negro which is have alternate history so it's uh, based on history, you know, but it's an alternate history of events. So it's it's as if our spies were were working behind the scenes during that time, not changing the outcome, but sort of changing the details along the way. So it's always grounded in something that has happened, and then we think about how we can fictionalize it and also personalize it. You know, making a family story and a political story and a spy story at the same time. Were scientists getting blown up all over the sea? I don't think. That and that we just didn't know about it. <laughs> I don't think they were getting blown up all over DC. Okay. Uh, that might have been a little bit more uh, one of the more fictionalized stories but I saw this interview of I think it was the writers of the show and you know there was this picture it was in Entertainment Weekly and it was a lot of white dudes and there was you in terms of as a black queer woman in that space who's probably been in lots and lots of white spaces throughout your career how much do you feel like your experiences on all these identities that you come with sort of written into the scripts that you work on or into the story yeah no as a black lesbian I'd say I do feel like my voice is very respected and heard on that show. That's not always the case. But I think it's becoming more the case now. You know, there's so many more shows now and people are so aware, you know, the success of Empire and, and other shows. But the 
necessity of actually having a black voice in a row. But also, you know, we're writing about the 80s when the, there wasn't a whole lot of black people in the FBI. So I do definitely feel like, you know, my, my voices and concerns are heard because that's also their concerns. Uh, they're also very political and want to be authentic to the experience. And also because, you know, Elizabeth as a character is just a very political person right. and cares about those things. I know that on Facebook there was this whole thread about, and I don't even think you read it, I think it was mostly on Karen's page, which was like, can we write Trump into the Americans? Like, is that going to happen? Oh, no, that's not going to happen, so let's just let that go. <laughs> That's done. We're writing the last season now, and I can confirm. There will be, so that's a spoiler. There'll be no Trump. There's not even going to be a Trump Tower shot, nothing. Mm -mm. No. But but let me ask you, sort of knowing the arc of history and where we're at now, right, and that, you know, all the stuff that happened with Russia, right, in the election, it's really interesting to, to really look at that staunch enmity of that time and how we now are here. No matter what happens, whether or not the whole thing is investigated, there are some clear facts, uh-huh. right, that uh-huh. beyond just the government, uh-huh. you know, Russia sort of getting uh-huh. themselves involved in our election, there were certain members of Trump's community of people uh-huh. that were sort of hand in hand with Russia. So it uh-huh. just seemed really interesting to me uh-huh. that like we had this very like start, they are the enemy, and now we're all sorts of in bed together. I don't know. We'll see how what this investigation turns up. But what I find even more interesting is, especially in light of, you know, Reagan calling Soviet Union the evil empire. That was one of the seminal speeches of his career as president. The evangelical community in the 80s being staunchly anti-communist, anti-Soviet, and considering that an anti-Christian philosophy, communists are part of it is to be an atheist, you know. Yeah, you see that in the show. To now see people like you know Billy Graham's son and the evangelical community saying that that's a Christian nation but it's really they're really talking about white identity politics and they're talking about this leader Putin who's basically uh, to them this strong white man who is you know a dictator and allowed to do whatever he wants and has this very anti-gay policy and politics and laws and it's like they're embracing oppressive culture and this oppressive system because of white identity politics and it's, it's surreal that those very same people who are obsessed with Reagan, I mean, Reagan would be turning over in his grave now if he, if he saw this, this kind of support for this communist system that he abhorred, you know and, and sort of the pretzel you know, they're turning themselves into pretzels because it's really about longing for this time when you know there was wasn't all this talk of refugees and multiculturalism and gays and lesbians and trans people there was you know you just look at the Soviet Union it just seems very simple this is the way you should be and this is the way you were going to be this is what we're going to make you be so as as a writer as an artist what do we do with this what do we do with this particular political time that we are in I think we, we do what we've always done I mean, but I also think it's not enough to just write about it or to post stuff about it. I think we have to get involved on the ground. And that, I mean, that's what I've been trying to do just in terms of going on marches, making phone calls, writing letters, joined a you know, political action group with some other artists. And I know many other artists have done that as well. I think we just have to really get our hands dirty. You know, yeah, write your songs, paint your paintings, write your poems, but you've also got to get out there, talk to people and figure out how to affect change the best way that you can. Do whatever you can to try to make a change. When's the next play coming? I'm working on it. What's it about? Uh, well, I wrote one play about school systems called 
prep that's out there in the world waiting to be produced. And then I'm writing another play about feminism. Oh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> that may have to be another another chapter of yes. this podcast. All right. A play about feminism. Yes. White feminism, black feminism, all of it in between. We'll see. Oh my god. <laughs> I am I am dying to, this is this uh, I'm dying to know more. So when is this play gonna be done? Uh, I gotta write it probably this year. Oh. I gotta finish it. I started it, I have to finish it. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you. This was so fun. In conversation.